Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us. Today, I have asked Tim Riberic to come and talk to me for the LIS 530 Technology Information and Society course. So welcome, Tim. We've known each other for nearly 10 years when we first met through the Access Library Technology Conference. Would you please tell our listeners who are really the students of the course about your current role and scholarly interests? And I should say that Tim is a librarian at Brock University. Thank you, Lydia. And first, thanks for for having me on. And it, it's incredible to think it's been nearly 10 years since we've crossed paths and continue to cross paths. So I'll start off by saying, uh, yeah, I've been working at Brock University for 16 years now in a variety of different roles. I'm presently the Digital Scholarship Librarian. I started off as something called the Digital Resources Librarian, and I've had some secondments and management roles along that uh, time. Presently, I'm also enrolled in the PhD program in educational studies at Brock University, and I'm looking at IT policy, uh, capital, and academic freedom, and how all of those things mush together. A lot of my scholarly work is, I think, on the topic, or very similar to what you're investigating with the class this week. A lot to do with how technology works, the political capital around it, and sort of uh, all of that gets informed by my years of working with vendors and sort of being around library platforms. So you really kind of sort of see the the tech landscape as well as the business model behind it. And then I'll, I'll say, talked about sort of scholarship and stuff. The most recent piece I wrote was in a publication called 2600, The Hacker Quarterly. I encourage everyone to, to check it out or take a look. It's a very subversive alt uh, news uh, quarterly. And I wrote a piece about how we can support whistleblowers by providing them infrastructure tools so that leakers, you know, can have some support when they have material instead of just donating it to WikiLeaks or some something, you know, crass like that. Thanks. Yeah. How did you know about Hacker Quarterly? Did someone approach you or did you approach them? 2600 has been around since 1984. It started off best as a zine, I guess is how you would describe it. And it's all about, you know, subversion with technology and they were founded and started by a bunch of you know people that had uh, blue boxes, right? So back when your payphone, you could use a little machine that could help you dial long distance for free. It kind of starts with that community and it grew from there. So 2600 is really great. I've published a few pieces there. And it's, I think what we'll get into today with the rest of our conversation, a, a combination of highbrow thinky stuff, and then also descriptions about code and, and actual stuff that you've done. So I've, I've, I've posted that. So if you Google around, I'm sure you'll be able to find the piece without much work. The reason I asked too is, I, I don't know if publications on students mind when they're in school, obviously mm. the priority is completing the degree. But I remember when we had, you know, research classes, and certainly in this class, there's lots of examples of different types of publications, including podcasts. But I am seeing some of my friends share knowledge in the journal article is not the only form. Yeah, and so yeah, it's absolutely. good to see, yeah, technology librarians share their knowledge in, you know, trade or industry publications or online magazines. And there's so much more of that. So that's why I asked. So that's awesome. There's always an audience for any kind of idea you have or any thought you want to put together. So it might not be, you know, the journal of academic librarianship, but I'm sure you'll find an audience. And it's important to think about that if you're going to pursue a career in academic librarianship before you're even done the thinking about and plotting out a strategy about what you're going to publish and what kind of scholarly output you're going to put together. That's for sure. 
I've asked you to come in during the Marxism, Feminism, and Technology section of the LIS 530 course. I thought of you because you have many years of professional practice with technologies like programming, physical computing, and all the platforms that make up the world of scholarly communication services and academic libraries. So usually when students hear those terms, we're talking about things like repositories, data analysis software, high-performance computing, and others. You also have experience with service design in this domain that we call digital scholarship centers and lab. Could you please talk more about your experience with teaching programming? So I was one of your students in a workshop at the Access Conference in Hamilton, Ontario, and how you've theorized what happens during instruction in technology specifically. I do really enjoy teaching in technology. Um, I'll mention that I have an undergraduate degree in computer science. So I came from a tradition of highly technical math-focused programming where there's no regard to the social situation that provides us with the, the code and the environment and who created the code in the first place, right? So having gone through librarianship and being charged with this responsibility of digital scholarship at Brock University, I like to always try to bring a bit of skepticism about uh, technology and how it works to anyone that sort of attends a class or does anything with me. So I'll talk about a concrete example. If your students are not familiar with, I'm sure they will be when they become working professionals. There's a professional development organization called Library Juice Academy. They have lots of different classes about many interesting different things. I run a class for that organization called uh, Python for Librarians. And the way I structure that class is <laughs> just a long walk to get to a point where we get really skeptical about machine learning. The capstone, the final week, is all about understanding how machine learning gets put together, doing it with actual hands-on examples, and then coming up with this idea of it's just gambling on spreadsheets more than anything else. And you know, to tie back to the reading for this week, we see this with uh, Dyer Witherford's piece about you know AI and narrow AI and machine learning pieces. We spend the time learning the basics of Python, and you know that takes three weeks. <laughs> of intensive stuff. And then we get to this example, we get to this endpoint where everyone sort of walks away saying, wow, I just did that. And that's what a lot of what our decisions that are made with our mediated tools are just based on spreadsheet probabilities. And it's kind of unnerving. I suppose the lesson there or what I'm hoping comes across is that technology is never neutral and that we're always making value assumptions. And we often theorize and talk about that being the case because we could see lots of effects of, you know, spot shotter in the United States being dubious. But when you can actually run someone from the very beginning of this is how you program up to a very healthy skepticism of machine learning and how it's applied in the environment around us, particularly with library tools or other things we engage with, you know, it's a real, I hope, light bulb moment. It's certainly something that I hope underscores everything that I do when I'm teaching technology, right? So it's never just about the tools and what you can use them. It's how values are encoded into those tools and all that kind of stuff. Another thing maybe I'll talk about, which is it's instruction, but it's not maybe not direct instruction. So real perk of the job is that you'll engage with digital scholarship and it has a variety of sort of definitions and descriptions. But um, one of the things is you'll often get a researcher coming forward and asking a, a question about how I'm interested in analyzing this type of thing. What do you have for me? So just last year, a sociologist came into the lab and asked us about our sub that's called anti-work. And he wanted to analyze all the posts in that to see sort of what themes were happening during you know the period that's been called the great resignation. 
it was really great because he went to some third-party companies and they were giving him quotes and the thousands of dollars to like harvest this information. And I was able to sort of walk him through, here's actually what it involves. It's not supremely sophisticated. You know, if you attended that Python for Librarians class, it's a pretty good basis for everything that happens here. And it's, you know, here, let's accumulate all this information, clean it up in a, in a nice, interesting way, and then perform the analysis by pushing it through with the rest of the, the research team. It was really indicative of demystifying this technology and assuring people it's a bit easier than you think it is because it's not meant to be complicated or certainly presented in a way that's possible to learn if you give it the time. So the long and the short of it is that along with this research team, we presented at the Canadian Association of Work and Labor Studies just in May. And we talked about the research that we did, which was really cool. It was a digital scholarship inspired analysis of a large quantity of social media data. And we came up with a really cool qualitative social science inspired uh, end result. So I'm pretty pleased with that. And I think that's a really great anecdote that describes, I think, how I approach all of this work and the motivations behind it. So doctoral studies seem to be an avenue for many academic librarians. I'm sure you know colleagues, I know colleagues who have pursued it or are in the middle of it. And you started a PhD program at Brock University this year. Maybe I'm wrong. Please tell us more why you decided to pursue it. I suppose those of you in the class, if you start a career in the academic librarian profession, you get quickly in this environment where you're surrounded by people with PhDs that have devoted large chunks of their life to, you know, writing a dissertation and then maybe even doing a postdoc. So part of me wanted to really be able to run with that crowd in a way that was beyond just sort of theoretical. I really wanted to be empathetic for researchers and people that have gone through and are going through things that you're helping out. And a combination of these kinds of factors just sort of weighed on me enough to the point where I was like, you know what, let me try this out. I should mention, I got a master's degree of computer science on the job like a couple of years ago, and I wanted to, I suppose, continue that on. And one of the things about being a, a student or someone in the university environment is that you get these ideas and flashes about, oh, I can do this as a kind of research, or I can explore this. And then, you know, eventually that culminates into a point of, for me anyways, pursuing a PhD. I think a lot of mid-career librarians maybe face a sort of choice point where they're, well, I can go into management, or, you know, I can double down on this idea of research and being a researcher. And, you know, for me, I, as I mentioned at the top, I had some secondments in uh, management positions. So I kind of had some firsthand experience to know that wasn't, that wasn't my jam, you know, all things told, then that brings me to this PhD program, which, you know, we, we dig into a little bit more um, because I think it has to do a lot with the topic of this class and ultimately looks at IT use in the institution and how that interacts with a bunch of different factors. It's really neat. And that it's an intrinsic thing, you know, I'm doing it for my own betterment. And then I'm also getting some instrumental good out of it because I can, you know, roll with the big dogs now when I talk about things in meetings and pitch projects and stuff, I can say, well, when I was doing my dissertation and stuff like that. And, you know, the university is also a very classist place and I wanted to <laughs> engage with that, make myself the best I could by getting more school. If you don't mind talking about the subject of your dissertation and how it draws on your experience in technology librarianship, would you tell us the main themes guiding your study at this moment in time? 
any graduate student will tell you, you know, what they started with will probably be different than what they end with. So this is just where my thoughts are at the moment, but I, it's informed by experience. So, you know, as I've been talking about, I spent a lot of time doing technology in a university environment and you kind of notice things along the way. So I'm, I'm trying to look at a bunch of different factors pushed together. And so my hypothesis is that capital by the way of a service provider, such as Microsoft and Google and D2L or whatever other forces are at play in the university. They're trying to exert some dominance over the university uh, by being heavy-handed with what is allowed on their platform. Google and Microsoft certainly don't want any disruptive usage that goes outside of a very narrow band that makes them money, right? So they don't want people to create things like Tor or other subversive platforms. My conjecture then is that university admins don't want to rock the boat. So they advocate and they push for policies that show a large deference towards capital. So they want to make sure that when faculty members sit down and use some technology, it's not really going to hit those edges or sort of come across or get into use cases that are sort of outside of the lines, right? I think the consequence of that is that uh, faculty and grad students encounter this and then they can't make any useful IT or infrastructure changes on their own. So they've got to navigate this and figure out what comes next. If you have deep pockets and you have research funds, you just go to the cloud and you pay for a service. But if that's not the case, what do you do? And then there's um, this dimension, I call it a doctrine of academic freedom that sort of empowers faculty members to do research however they want to do it with limited uh, restrictions. So what's got to give here? The university craves innovative, interesting, novel, IT-based research, but we have IT policies and hand-wringing that sort of stops researchers from doing anything interesting. So I'm going to wrap all that up in a Marxist analysis and sort of talk about, I think, how faculty members need to exert their academic freedom to make this stuff happen. And I also think that it's a small enough portion of faculty members across the country, that it's a very small voice, but it needs to be amplified. So we'll see what happens as it progresses. And who knows when it's all done, I might be writing about Marxism in the classroom or who knows what, but that's the start of my idea. My supervisor thinks it's a good one. And then, you know, in five years, we'll do a follow-up and I'll tell you if, if it panned out or not. Yeah. It seems that what you're describing obviously is the continued expansion of the churn of profit motive, the drive of capital into every aspect of society, including post-secondary education. And for all the talk of the commons or the public good or these you know, higher notions of education, you're absolutely right. We operate within it. And I think librarians are socialized with all kinds of myths that yeah, help think- us do our job. We're in a very awkward situation because part of our mandate or our raison d'etre is to connect our end users to these tools and resources so that they can go about doing their their research. But we, in fact, make decisions about values all the time when we do that, whether we're conscious of it or not. You know, we need to advocate for certain database products, LexisNexis, that's providing information to ICE in the United States. You know, like there's those connections, I think, that we can't overlook. Working in a university environment, you need to be critical of all these kinds of things, right? And the benevolence that librarianship has for itself and what it does is not shared with the tools and the platforms that we purchase and provide access to. So we're we're definitely stuck in the middle here, and we have to navigate this all the time about how much we put our thumb on the scale with respect to 
being critical of the stuff that we're providing. And it's, yeah, it's a very difficult task. And I think it's something that you scratched the surface of certainly in this class, you know, having looked at the syllabus and all the readings that are encouraging your students and all of you to think about, right? Absolutely. So I saw you, I think, wave a copy of Cyber Proletariat. Do you want to talk about your impression? I know you've told me you've you've enjoyed Cyber Proletariat, and I believe you finished the introduction to Inhuman Power. Do you have any initial impressions of the work of Nick and obviously his collaborators, specifically, I guess, on labor, but also technology now AI? Uh, I don't know. I'm putting you on the spot. But yeah, do you sure, have sure. any any thoughts or any suggestions for students to think about that kind of work? I'll go so far as to say I've read all three of his major books just over the past few months. His first work in 1997, I think, is called Cybermarks, and then you know Cyberproletariat, and then this Inhuman Power. So, what I think is really interesting is that we have Marxism coming out in the 1850s, 1860s. That's sort of at the dawn of the industrial era. It's not until the 1960s, 1970s, and Dyer Weatherford's work in the 90s where we start sort of updating Marxism for this information society that we're living in. One of the theses that comes through inside of Inhuman Power is this idea that AI could be liberating and could make our lives easier, but capital is not going to allow it to go that direction. They're going to keep squeezing value and trying to make surplus value from these automatic processes that should be empowering us with that full luxury automated communism. What's interesting is that librarianship might be somewhere in that spectrum or in that conversation because we provide tools that allow our users to find resources, right? But they don't function like other tools like Google Scholar, for example. And one of the things I think about, you know, if Google Scholar really wanted to put us out of business, they would just need to devote like six more people to the Google Scholar team and they would destroy all of the products and the, the market share and everything that we build our careers on. So I think he does a great job of scratching the surface of, you know, what happens if automation runs amok and if we have AI that's very particularly powerful on certain things, that's going to put a lot of people out of work. And then what comes next? Hopefully it's more time for recreation and spending time with our families instead of, you know, more precarious employment, but who knows? I mean, it's a great introduction. It really hits a lot of interesting points and, you know, and it's uh, thought provoking in that. I don't think it's something you hear in other kinds of uh, library school environments. That's for sure. No, you're right. And I was reading another author who's on the syllabus, Seema Papert, who's one of my favorite thinkers. So he's writing in the early 80s about children with computers and really like the dawn of personal computing revolution, if you call it that. But you're right, how much hopefulness and sometimes naive positivity there is that, you know, this one tool, right, or this one method. And I think we are mm -hmm. seeing this absolutely with AI, but certainly for, so for Papert, it was personal computer as a tool of liberation, specifically for children and learning. And it's sad to read the work now through the lens of everything we've experienced, but but see that he is very critical and like super solid on the pedagogical and children's development and epistemology side of things. But he's not critical of that social political operations of personal computers as a commodity right. in society. Right. What I appreciate from Nick Dyer-Witherford's work, his collaborators, is the sort of realistic assessment, right, of not going one way that it's just, you know, you've already dropped the term of uh, luxury communism. So tools as liberation, as freeing us up, which is admirable, but also not guaranteed. 
but also the other side, which is continued exploitation, really. Yeah. Uh, we do have a lot of evidence for that, right, of automation and humans doing really menial, dehumanized work. The author state really clearly that there's no guarantees. And that's also the work of researchers, right, not to promise or sugarcoat things, but also not be so negative. Yeah, I think, you know, the term of uh, tech exceptionalism sort of describes this well, right? So we have startups in Silicon Valley that come up with all sorts of disruptive things and expect to take over the world and make things better by introducing some, the next Uber that destroys the employment of hardworking cabbies all over the world, or, you know, uh, Airbnb comes along to disrupt the rental market and, you know, creators, different cities in its path. Librarianship needs to be cognizant of, of that trajectory and the idea of tech exceptionalism through the tools, right? Let's be honest. We're not working in environments where we're free of technology anymore. Any kind of library environment you find yourself in, whether it be public, academic, or special, you're going to be using tools that have choices built into them and values. So I think we need to be mindful and be able to interrogate those things. And I think the book sets us on that path. Who knows if there's going to be a some vendor platform in the next five to 10 years that says, you know, give it a natural language question and it'll spit out all the things that you need for a first year essay in a you know history class or something. I can imagine that's right around the corner. And how are we going to respond to that collectively by saying, you know, this is making some assumptions. It's not counting the full breadth of experience if it's, you know, focuses on the, the white male history as opposed to other sources, right? We need to be mindful of these things because startups are going to try to disrupt librarianship. Oh gosh, that's just around the corner. Guaranteed, you know, let's disrupt librarianship. And we're going to be on our heels if we don't have the tools, the technology, and sort of the vocabulary to talk against these kinds of things. And it's just around the corner and we need to devise a strategy. I want to return to the notion of class that you brought up. The university being heavily classist, you know, examples of wireless internet hotspot lending, computer access in public libraries, much technology in, you know, lending initiatives, we've all seen or maybe experienced them, along with things like zero cost textbooks are founded on the assumptions of inequitable material access. But yet these initiatives often struggle to achieve their goals due to structural reasons. So why do you think LIS is so unwilling to talk about class when discussions of race, gender, ability are starting to become more common in the so-called discourse and on the job? But maybe, maybe that's another assumption. I hope the next generation of librarians in training are more mindful of this challenge. I would certainly agree with you on all the things you're proposing here about we're well-intentioned in a lot of respects, but the execution sort of dries up eventually, or we don't have a solid commitment to these things, right? I'll speak from my experience in the university environment. You know, the classism is baked right into the process, right? You know, you're an undergrad, you're a graduate student, you're adjunct, you're staff, and then you're faculty, and you fall into one of those categories pretty mutually exclusively, or, you know, there's not a lot of overlap. So I think at that level, it trusts the system too much, or the system trusts itself too much, where it sort of thinks that, you know, that the barriers and the gatekeeping that have been put in place are there for a reason. And, you know, because someone has a PhD after their name, you can assume certain things. But I think one of the things maybe I'll be unpopular with your students is saying that, you know, I think librarianship suffers from this term of endearment called um, 
vocational awe. Thank you. Librarianship sort of relishes in its reflective glow of the history that it has and the successes that it had, right? So, you know, if you think to the first public libraries in North America, they were democratizing institutions where books can finally be made available and anyone that wants to read can read them. But now, you know, we have a, a serious competitor to sort of information through the internet and all of that. So I think we're living in the past in certain respects, and we're not facing these challenges head on. That's the exact question you asked me, like, why aren't we facing these challenges? And and I think my answer at this point is, you know, we're maybe still living in the romantic past of librarianship. Some of our technology is pretty old too. Like I always love to joke about, you know, Mark, if those of you who've taken cataloging classes or are familiar with data interchange, you know, that's a system that predates the modern internet and we're still using it in librarianship. So there's, there's clearly like a accumulated to a certain point and said, okay, that's enough. And off we went. And I think that reckoning needs to happen with a lot of things. And clearly what I've been talking about previous up until this point has been about technology for me, but I think, yeah, the social good and the questions about neutrality and freedom of expression. And does that mean, you know, anyone can book a study room in your space? Well, it shouldn't, but Sometimes the values of the librarianship don't allow us to really explore that in a meaningful way. So I, yeah, Lydia, it's a great question. I wish I had a better answer for you, but I, I don't think the profession presently is prepared for such a conundrum or facing that. I don't know. I'll, I'll turn it over to you. What do you think is the way forward with this idea of classism and why we don't recognize it properly? I'm really glad you bring that up because you have already referenced concept that I think is important for this class, which is the notion of procedural justice. So this idea that I believe comes from LIS's grounding in liberalism and the notion of procedural justice is explored in sociology, which fundamentally says that if you only trust the system, the process, it will cover everyone and it will ensure that fairness is enacted. But for whom are processes designed? Are they in fact created for everyone? And who do we mean by everyone? Who is included? Those are questions that are being challenged now as we, on a social level, I believe, have a deeper conversation about difference. Thus, the very idea of class is mystified behind the belief that the system is fair and designed transparently, and if only we commit to it wholeheartedly, everything will work out and everyone will have an opportunity for who knows what, wealth, fame, <laughs> safety, those are the things that I think are important to question. But I also want to draw our attention to the fact that as workers of institutions, librarians, archives, and museums staff are also embedded in those systems. We perpetuate them, we continue to design them as we also are subject to them and as we may push back and question them. So this is the hard part for us to, I guess, build our consciousness is to recognize that we are enmeshed and we are embedded in these social systems. That's why these problems are larger than any one individual. And where technology, I think, comes in is the fact that it's in, it's an extension of those relations. It perpetuates them in many ways, and it also opens up a possibility to maybe 
at least see it, if not challenge it. Uh, so this is the uneasy spot of being, um, I guess, a critical thinker and a critical professional is to recognize our enmeshedness, our interrelatedness in these larger concepts and in operations of systems. Yeah. I think the other, I, I totally agree with your points and maybe I'll add just a couple of other things to consider and students in the audience might, you know, take this to heart and see it as a challenge for the profession going forward. You know, it's, it's, it's tough out there right now. You know, we're dealing with precarity constantly and it's tough to think about high-minded ideals when you're working contract to contract and trying to get a steady gig and, you know, have a life beyond work. And then the other thing too, with this lack of guidance, which I like to I'm sure you you remember and know that I like to bring up all the time is we don't have a CLA anymore, right? We had the Canadian Library Association and that dissolved and, you know, promised to be reborn like a phoenix at some point in the future. And it hasn't been. And I'm sure it's been at least 10 years since the CLA fell apart. And there's nothing that's filled in that gap, nothing that's come to sort of lead us forward and speak for all of us and our values and what we hope to achieve collectively. So after we got political, do you have any parting thoughts for students who may be interested in technology work for connecting theory and practice? Well, for sure. I mean, ultimately, we like to engage in this, grow our minds by going to school, but ultimately we want to get a gig after it's all done and like, how do we get there? So the thing I always like to sort of remind people as they're going through school, well, you know, a caution and a reminder. So the reminder is always seek to differentiate yourself from everyone else. That means, you know, if you want to get involved with technology, you don't need to jump in and start programming. You can work with organizations such as the Carpentries or various other places where you can write documentation for technology projects that will get you experience interacting and engaging with technology in a way where you're not programming. And that will help differentiate you from other people applying for that same gig. And the, the caution I would say is that this for better, for worse, there's the growth area, the technology stuff. I think into the future, you won't be getting or seeing a lot of cataloger jobs or even instructional jobs. I think I think everything's going to go into this direction. So it's best to be ahead of the curve or at least mindful of these things as they're developing, right? So certainly have that healthy uh, dose of skepticism when you're looking at this stuff, but then also think about how is the thing that I'm doing getting through librarian school making me a different employee into the future? And then really digging into that. The other thing too, which is pragmatic and start thinking about publishing, doesn't need to be in traditional peer-reviewed stodgy journals. You can get lots of different venues that will publish your work. And it's really great stepping stone. It's a really great thing to keep in mind because if you want to get to that point where you're in a nice uh, academic university environment, you know, discussing these things with your colleague and friend who's having a podcast for her class, you need to start publishing or getting your work out there in some respect. So coursework is great, but think about how you can turn what you've learned in your courses into publishable units, software that you can share with others, presentations at conferences. I think it starts even when you're at school. Absolutely. Great. Well, thank you so much for your time and for talking through both conceptual and practical questions with me. So um, yeah, on behalf of the class, I want to thank Tim for joining us today. And uh, thank you, Lydia, for talking to me about this stuff. I always enjoy going on about it. And um, it's been a great chat. And, uh, and best of luck to you students listening to this and your future endeavors. Wonderful. Bye.